Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently spoke with David Novak about his super fascinating new book, Japa Noise, Music at the Edge of Circulation. This came out in 2013 with Duke University Press. Now, when you think of noise, what is noise? Is it I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently spoke with David Novak about his super fascinating new book, Japa Noise, Music at the Edge of Circulation. This came out in 2013 with Duke University Press. Now, when you think of noise, what is noise? Is it a musical form? Is it a musical genre? In Thinking about this question, but also thinking beyond this question, David Novak takes us into the various scenes, spaces, and phenomena from which noise, and Japanese in particular, has emerged as an object. The book is based on extended fieldwork in North America and in Japan over the space of 10 years and beyond. And it thinks about noise as a form of sound and a form of music that can only exist, as Novak puts it, in circulation. So what this winds up being is a really fascinating ethnography that introduces these kinds of mediated human and technological individuals that include human beings, they include spaces, uh, including a space called drugstore, they include objects like a repurposed speak and spell, they include an electronic hot pot, but it also asks us to think more critically and more creatively about some of the kinds of phenomena that a lot of these actors collectively engage in and that are really central to our work as thinkers, as scholars, as readers. And these are phenomena like circulation. So what does it mean to talk about circulation of anything historically and ethnographically? And can we problematize circulation 
and the kind of work that it does by looking at a particular case study of a really fascinating group of musicians, sound artists, technologists, people, and the kind of work that they've been doing and have been doing at the intersection of music and not performance and not noise and not it's a really fascinating study. Um, it's a really, really engagingly written book, and I hope you have a chance to read it because I imagine you'll learn um, a lot from it as I did as well. I really enjoyed talking with David about it, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And certainly, I hope that it inspires you to go out and learn more about some of these people that we talk about and that he writes about because some of them are super, super fascinating and really interesting whether or not you think of yourself as somebody who's fundamentally interested in noise music. So it was a pleasure and I hope you enjoy. We're here today with David Novak to talk about his new book, Japa Noise, Music at the Edge of Circulation. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, David, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me, and especially at the end of a long week on a Friday early evening. I'm, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Carla. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So, David, could you say a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the study of modern Japan and to musical cultures within that context specifically? Sure. Uh, well, it's kind of a long story it's it's and, and i i don't i could go back quite a long way and i do in the beginning of the book talk about this but uh i i went to japan uh with stars in my eyes you know uh at a, as a i think 19 i think i was 19 when i went to japan and and uh i was very uh unprepared um to uh uh end up doing something like noise uh, i went originally uh interested in medieval Japan and, and I, uh, I had, a, I had taken a class on medieval Japan and, uh, it was, I think the, you know, 1989, it was, it, and I had read a book called jobs in Japan, you know, which, which, which enabled me to believe that what, that it was going to be fine for me to drop out of school and, uh, just move to Japan and, and teach English and, and, and manage for myself. I didn't do any kind of over, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, program or anything like that. I just dropped out of school. And with my girlfriend at the time, we moved um, to, uh, we ended up in Kyoto uh, because I was, like I said, obsessed with this medieval um, Japanese stuff. That's all I really knew. And uh, I was a musician. I was interested in, in rock and underground music and a lot of other kinds of things. But I was, my idea of Japan was, was, you know, that I would go and play Koto uh, and that I would learn, you know, language and I would learn history. And, and I did those things, but I also encountered a Japan that was nothing like my expectations. And, uh, and also, you know, work life uh, outside of uh, ideas. Uh, a lot of things that, that brought me to, uh, to just made me grow up. So, you know, Japan to me is connected to my growing up and my, uh, being a person, I didn't go back for a really long time, so it wasn't th that wasn't the moment in which I, I formulated the the project. And in fact, it, as I talk about in the book a little bit, what was interesting was that I didn't ever hear about anything about noise when I was in Japan. And it wasn't until I came back uh, a year later with you know with with uh, barely enough money to start school again to uh, that I, that I began to hear people tell me, you know, there's this music, uh, that's, that's been hitting 
our shores, you know, uh, uh, and have you ever heard about it? And I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And so, the, you know, that became part of the, the fascination was that I had been there. I had had this particular kind of focus. Um, of course, you know, my disillusionment with my with my illusory expectations was part of, of, of refocusing me on other things like popular culture things, underground culture things, finding people who could connect with me about you know, experimental music and art and uh, and just changing a lot of what. Um, you know, getting more real, really, about what what I was doing there. So, how did you come to focus from that sort of constellation of different sort of issues and experiences on Japanese, in particular, as an academic project? How did you decide to to do that, and what did that involve for you in the context of graduate? Work? Uh, I went back to grad school. I was in rock bands for a bunch of years. I actually, after I never thought I'd go back to Japan. It was like a, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Uh, I went to Indonesia and I was studying gamelan music. And when I went to school to study ethnomusicology, when I went back to school after you know a bunch of years of being in rock bands and traveling around the United States and things like that, um, living in different places, I I didn't have the idea that I was going to go back and do a project on popular music or on, or on noise or anything like that. And I actually found that gamelan wasn't a satisfactory subject for me, uh, for, for reasons that had to do with the way that it had been studied and sort of my, uh, approach to Indonesia, which was also, you know, about the politics that I'd experienced there and the sort of, I was there during Suharto's, uh, uh, new order. And it was, a uh, a very eye-opening experience and you know so so all those things kind of haunted my study of gamelan so when i went back to school i i lasted about uh three or four weeks before i realized i wasn't really going to make it there were people there who were really gamelan people and they really knew it and they had studied it and i had spent most of my time doing other things in indonesia other than gamelan <laughs> uh for, for a lot of reasons but uh I decided about halfway through that, you know, maybe even ethnomusicology wasn't asking the questions I wanted to ask, because that's the field I went back to school in, not East Asian studies, which was my undergrad degree. And I said, uh, well, okay, I got to get out of this, you know, or something. That was my thought. I was playing a lot of experimental music. I had, I had a few good friends. I was playing with Anthony Braxton, who was at Wesleyan. Uh, I was playing free jazz and I was playing, I was doing electronic music with my friends and I was doing a lot of things that followed my creative interest and they said they knew about uh noise music and they said you know well since you got to have this cultural element to do your ethnomusicology uh dis you know dissertation why don't why don't you do japan noise like that'll mess them up you know <laughs> uh and i i thought okay uh i'll do a uh you know a master's thesis on 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 noise music this is 1999 uh 1998 when i decided to do it in 1999 when I finished the master's thesis. So I wrote this master's thesis, you know, um, like a couple hundred pages. I went to, back to Japan for it. And, you know, and then I th said, okay, now I'm going to quit, you know. Uh, and I didn't think, you know, that I would continue doing it. And then I found that it spun into its own life. And it actually, that's what kept me going in ethnomusicology. It wasn't the, you know, the, the feeling of, oh, well, I must be a professor in ethnomusicology or I must... I must uh, uh, continue with this because I thought I would just, uh, you know, write it and stop. Um, but I ended up finding this wonderful grad program at Columbia um, University uh, where I could do it and where people helped me think 
about why it was actually worth doing and important. And not to say that Wesleyan didn't, um, didn't do that for me as well, but, uh, it was a moment of transition. So, um, then I decided to do the, the project on noise and, uh, you know, it just sort of, uh, built on itself as it should. <laughs> So this is the book that we're talking about, and I should mention right at the outset, it is a fabulous book. I loved this book, and it's one of the many reasons, or among the many reasons that I love this book, are the fact that it is, it's about Japan, and it's about Japanese, but it's also about so many other really wonderfully important and transformative conceptual issues that speak and are, are translatable well beyond the context of music studies, of Japanese studies, and I hope it gets a really wide readership because of that. Um, and I personally learned a ton from it. So we'll get there. We'll get to all of those concepts. But before um, we get there, this did begin as a dissertation um, and now we're talking about the book. Can you talk about any transformations along the way between those two major kind of monuments or monumental stages in the life of an academic book? Did the way you were thinking about the project transform? Did Were any parts of the original project dramatically transformed? And um, are there any important moments or aspects of that transition that you'd like to share? Uh, well, I had wonderful, I mean, I can start at the end, which is that it, it's finally out. And, uh, you know, it, it feels like a very long time and it is a, a very long time. Uh, the, 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 the side, the, the end part at Duke, uh, was, was great to see it really take shape. It was also long and, and, and I, and I took, um, the comments from my wonderful reviewers very seriously. And I, I took a long time with it. So, um, from there, uh, I think, oh, I, I mean, I'll say it started a long time ago, like with this master's thesis in 99. And um, what's interesting to me about the amount of time that it took to go from there to, to now is how consistent the things that I'm talking about have been, even in times of incredible transformation. But I'm getting onto the subject of how the world has changed and not how my writing has changed. Um, well, that's Okay. Yeah. So, well, one of the things is that in the course of writing this, you know, the digital revolution reframed popular culture and a lot of the things that were pretty normal uh, to the circulation I was talking about, like cassette exchange, you know, went away and came back again. You know, um, so things like vinyl that were, you know, more, uh, more normal or or more part of the underground and then they just disappeared and then they, now they're, now it's back as a, as a, as a medium. So th those kinds of, of things. And then that the, the, there are these consistencies with noise sort of going in and out. I call it submergent in the book. Like it's sort of a submergent form in the sense that it's always surfacing and submerging again. It spends most of its time under uh, the surface. And so it never really, you know, so if you work on a popular, another kind of popular music form and you start writing about it, you know, 15 years before you publish something significant about it, you know, you'll be hopelessly, hopelessly, you know, far from where you started. And I don't feel that way. I feel like I'm right in the middle. What, what I wrote was still right in the middle, kind of, even though people have, you know, it depends on where you're standing. So someone who's who's been following it for 20 years will say, yeah, that happened 20 years ago. And someone who picked it up last year will say, oh, this relates to what's happening right now. And I th find that to be the most you know, fascinating. That's what I learned the most from being with this book for so long that, that, uh, 
you know, just following it through that, that time. Now, you mentioned in the book that noise, and um, I should mention for listeners, when certainly when I ask you about noise, I'm using noise uh, as in the form of the capital N noise. And that'll why I'm doing that will become clear, I think, to listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book over the course of our conversation. But you talk about noise as only existing in circulation. And so the nature of the kinds of transformations that you're talking about still maintaining the kind of coherence of the subject and the phenomena that you wrote about makes a lot of sense, right? Given the nature of what you are writing about, which is something that exists in transformation and in circulation as you describe it in the book. So before we get to that really fascinating aspect of what you're arguing about circulation, let's make sure that we're starting at the beginning for listeners who may not have ever heard about this concept. So first things first, Japanese noise, what is it? <laughs> so, I have no idea. I mean, the, 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 the thing about the book and the idea of it is that starting at the beginning with Japan arts is starting with circulation. So it's not, you know, so the, the, where we want to start when we have a book that's supposed to be about a music genre is with some, the name of it, you know, like Japan noise, colon, what is it? Or if I look it up in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a history of rock genres, what will it say? Who are the, who, who's playing it? And, and, and you know, who's, where did it start and, and, and what does it sound like? And those are the kinds of questions that we, that we would ask at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing for me about this was that that, that uh, way of thinking about music didn't work for it. So although there is something that, we, you know, that has been conceptualized as a genre, that's really only a small part of it. So something like Japan noise is a phrase that got um, applied to this uh, circulation. And, and there's a music, but then let me say there is a music, right? That, 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 so, you know, after I've given you that contrary uh, treatment of your question, you know, <laughs> let me go back to say, okay, all right, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> Japan, Japan noise is a genre that's made with this, uh, with these, uh, electronic, um, um, uh, like, uh, guitar pedals and, 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 uh, and circuit boards and, and, uh, mixing boards and it, it's uh, it's very harsh. So it's it's a kind of music that isn't even conceived by its practitioners as music. And it's you know in that way uh, to put a, a generic name on it and call it noise is 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 a very uh, uh, contrary thing to do. So people are pretty ambivalent about that. Um, it's related to industrial music and punk music and free jazz and other genres. And you have um, the most famous practitioners. Uh, in Japan and the United States and, and Europe, but especially Japan. And I found that to be the most interesting aspect of, of noise. Cause you, you know, you can talk about noise uh, and noise music and noise rock, and you might have, have groups like uh, Sonic Youth in under noise rock, or you might have Lou Reed who just, you know, RIP uh, passed uh, with his wonderful metal machine music record in 75, you know, these, or you could go back to Luigi Rosolo and, in the futurist movement and say, well, these are all noise and, and, and do a sort of uh, trans historical take on it. But what I wanted to focus on in the book was the way that it got sort of crystallized within a cultural frame so that you would, there were these people who thought of it as something Japanese. And, you know, here you have this thing that, that, you know, has, has developed over, you know, many decades that, you know, that, that, doesn't even seem to be a form that you know doesn't have a consistent sound that that doesn't have uh, a, you know an identifiable 
people necessarily who are the you know heroes of the genre or the center of it. And yet you have this name. And so that that was an interesting starting point uh, to, to think about, well, how did this happen? You know, and rather than going back to saying something like grunge, where you'd say, oh, well, grunge is something that was a name that somebody, some journalist made up. But there was a bunch of musicians that were doing this. You know, you could say Nirvana and, and uh, the Melvins and, you know, Mudhoney and Soundgarden and blah, blah, blah. And you can you can tell that history of the genre in that way. And, and you can pretty fairly say it comes from the Pacific Northwest from this time period and all that. And I found Japan was totally violated all of that. And that's one of the fascinating things about the book. And so what we're going to see in the book is that all of these concepts that I've kind of trickily asked you about and that you've rightly you know, turned on their heads are all going to be in constant motion throughout the book. And they sort of there's a constant cycle of destruction and construction um, moving us through all of these kinds of phenomena. So we'll get to that as we get through the chapters. Now, as you start out the book in the introduction, you lay out some of the basic background that undergirds the study. The book is based on extended fieldwork in North America and Japan over a 10-year period at least from 1998 to 2008, and some materials and experiences thereafter. You have interviews here with music musicians, listeners, club owners, label owners in Osaka, Kyoto, and Tokyo, fieldwork in New York City, San Francisco, Providence, London, Ontario, which is one of my favorite moments of the book. <laughs> we'll get, definitely get to them. Observation of performances, participation in some performances, which is fascinating, um, and all these other kinds of experience and work in various sorts of material written and conceptual and experienced archives that all together um, undergird this really interesting study. Now, I brought up already um, one of the key terms that you bring up in this introduction of the book, and that is circulation. As you put it, noise can only exist in circulation. But rather than taking this notion of circulation for granted, one of the really helpful things and one of the really transformative things I think that the book is doing is problematizing this idea of circulation we tend to take for granted. You mentioned here wanting to challenge the comparative models of exchange that take circulation to be something that happens between cultures. Instead, for the book, circulation creates culture. It constitutes culture. So to get us started um, in this deep cut through the book, can you talk a little bit about that? Because circulation, its importance for what you're doing in this early part of the book and how you're trying to reframe it. Okay. Uh, yeah, so circulation is one of those, again, one of the, that's something that has changed over the course of writing this, that it, that concept has gone from something that was less discussed to being something that's actually quite central to, I think anthropology uh, uh, meetings a couple of years ago was called cultures of circulation. And, and there were a few important articles. One of them was by uh, Lee and Le, uh, Benjamin Lee and Edward Lapuma in public culture. And they had an, an issue in the millennial quartet uh, all about circulation. And that sort of changed my thinking a lot about what I was looking at. And I kept on trying to think why I, I knew that I was, you know, like I said at the beginning, uh, trying to mess up, you know, some of the connections between um, genre or musical cultures and, uh, you know, sort of a centralized place and, and, and identity. Um, but I didn't really know how to do it. And uh I, but I knew that this music was about, you know, feedback. And, and so that, that was the concept that I was going to go to, but first, 
you know, circulation was was the idea that I that I took up, and circulation, you know, coming from a Potteri and and others that that influenced me, uh, really conceptualized uh, globalization as as in in terms of these different flows and scapes and the way that uh, music fit into that was was you know to me fairly obvious, but the way that it had been studied a lot in ethnomusicology was you looked at a culture. Um, and then when you saw music that traveled, like, let's say, South African music through Paul Simon uh, or, or in other ways in which uh, the media scape was formed by the movement of, of, a, of a form from one place to another, what you were looking at a lot of time was the, trans- was the transformations of the material and the way that it often violated um, the sort of cultural norms of the, of the or- original uh, place. And, you know, thinking about Japan noise, it was kind of an obvious place to start. There's an Orientalism to it. There's a, a way in which you might look at it as something that's a Japanese form that, you know, was um, the noise was introduced in the in the distortion of the channel or something that that that's something that started in one place ends up, you know, being wrongly re- reframed somewhere else. And I found that that was definitely true, but that 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 form the re the distorted form the noisy form uh the translation fed back to the original and and so that uh circulation became essential for me to understand how this thing came about and um and it wasn't just you know following a flow but looking at it as a cultural process that circulation was something that made this happen there was no way to conceive of it outside of that and that makes it very very frustrating i mean i know that you're you're doing a stalwart job, you know, um, trying to get me to say what the book's about. And I think, and I think it's, it's always really hard for, 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 for me and, and when I'm talking about it and for, and I'm sure it is also for you to hear it, that, you know, that, you know, that I can't just settle down and say like, here's what this book's about, or here's what the genre is, but I'm, but I'm, uh, but, but I'm only understanding, uh, what I, what I wrote about through that, uh, circulatory frame. And, and, and so, I wanted to find a way to address that and move it from the way that circulation had been discussed as, as something that uh, moved uh, you know, music from one place to another or culture from one place to another uh, to something that could be, see, could, could be seen as a recursive process or, or a culture-making process that, that breaks down and which distortions weren't simply called out for, for, for being uh, sort of byproducts of an orientalist or colonial system, but, but that they were things that, um, that ended up forming, um, the forces of cultural, uh, knowledge so that you have, um, you know, the cultural politics of globalization is something that you can only conceive of in, in terms of its ongoing in, interaction. And so, uh, that, that I, I was very influenced by honest things work, uh, uh, her book, especially called Friction, and I really thought of noise as a form of uh, friction in which global interconnections, you know, can really only be understood uh, if you look at at the ways in which they break down, or people who aren't included in circulation still participating, or misinterpretations and misunderstandings still being part of the frame, still being part of the picture. It's not just that someone, you know, uh, far away, you know, ends up liking something or or hearing something or buying something from somewhere else. It's all the things that that uh, that connect to that. So it's a network based uh, thought, but it's also um, it's also something that depends on sort of uncertainty and 
um, and randomness, if you want to look at it that way. And so that, then uh, you look at something that folds in on itself as it goes. Great. Thank you. And I think actually it's, um, it's totally, totally appropriate to the nature of the subject matter to be talking about circulation and genre and noise as things that are both things and not things, right? That constantly in motion. And uh, that's one of the, I think, great insights that comes out of the book. And so it's not frustrating at all. I'm actually just fascinated in hearing um, how you're describing your own sort of moments of and concepts of inspiration as we talk about these. So you talk about another really central concept that motivates the work that the entirety of the book does here in the introduction. This is related to circulation, but it takes a different form. You call feedback circulation at the edge. And this brings us to this other really massively important um, concept of feedback. Japanese, as you argue early in the book, could only have been produced through feedback between Japan and North America. You talk about feedback between recording and performance later on in the book. There's also the sonic phenomenon of feedback. Feedback structures everything here and infuses everything. So can you talk a little bit about the centrality of the concept of and the motivating uh, power of feedback as it shapes the argument that you're creating here in the book? Sure. Uh, it takes me, like you said, it takes, you know, me everywhere in the book. So I'll try and um, not let, you know, let myself get swept up in a particular version of it. But thinking about feedback, uh, you know, let me start with just what feedback, how, how you might conceive of feedback as, uh, you know, in the in the world. So, you know, we know feedback as a sonically, it's a mistake. It's something that, you know, when someone holds a microphone too close to a speaker and you have this sound and that sound usually means something's gone wrong or somebody's doing something wrong. Um, or it's somebody who's deliberately confronting, um, their, their, their system. So when music, you have feedback usually at the, you know, when Jimi Hendrix smashes his guitar or, or when somebody, you know, holds the guitar up to the amp and these kinds of things uh, happen. So th- there's this question of intentionality, and causality when you have something like feedback and throwing that into the mix with circulation, I thought was really useful because it helped understand how something could be a part of an improvisational process or, you know, like is, what is the, the, uh, the expression that comes out of, of that? Is that a person expressing themselves? Is that the machine uh, breaking down or is that, uh, you know, a mistake or is it on purpose? And, and there's all those questions that go into uh, global circulation between cultures that don't necessarily always have um, everything in common or when they do have, but they, they still have incredible connections. So that when I say it could only happen between the United States and Japan, it's because the United States and Japan are already so deeply connected. And yet there are so many disconnections and ruptures in that, in that um, circulation so that, you know, people in Japan know, everything about, you know, American popular media and, and culture, and they, they can emulate it closely. And they, they you know, they're often accused of, of just imitating it too closely. And, and on the other side, you have a culture that couldn't name, uh, you know, two or three Japanese uh, musicians of any kind, and that knows almost nothing about what's going on. So you have this, these, and they're comparable, you know, late capitalist uh, media uh, networks, but they, their connections are really not that great. So I talk about anime as an example, and you know Ian Condry's work is interesting in that in, in this and uh, his new book. Uh, I want to give a shout out to that. And you know 
Cristiano's book on, on Hello Kitty. And, you know, there are a bunch of people who are pointing, pointing out how these things like anime and Hello Kitty, you know, come out of these connections. And they, you know, no one would say that these things represent like the core of a Japanese culture or something like that. At the same time, uh, they, they do to the world and they have greater and greater relevance to the Japanese uh, government to, um, Anyone who who is involved in cultural exchange between Japan and the United States has to deal with these things. So I thought, you know, although noise doesn't come close to the scale of those things, it represents this um, kind of a connection. So that's one aspect of feedback. Then, you know, in in terms of the sound and the and the technological um, subjectivity, I, I thought that um, that question of intentionality was really interesting when you looked at musical forms, because you thought, uh, well, you know. When someone goes to see a noise performance, you know, why am I enduring this? Or um, are they doing this on purpose? You know, who wants to listen to this? Uh, how did this happen? How is this a mistake? I mean, did the, is, it, is it a mistake to call this music at all? And those are legitimate questions. They're not just, you know, sort of sometimes I get people who are ashamed to say these things to me after a talk or something. They'll say, like, you know, I have to admit that I can't you know, stand the music you played or I have to admit that I was with you until you played the example. Uh and, you know, it's sort of like, well, of course, of course, this music is not made, you know, uh, for people to instantly connect to. And so that question of like, are you serious? Is a really important question or, or, you know, is it is this on purpose? And so feedback asks us to think about that, you know, what what whether what somebody's doing, you know, how much does it have to do with expression and music? And, and so it sort of challenges those enlightenment ideas about, you know, musical creativity and genius and, and author, authorship and, uh, and the authenticity of, of sound and, and its production. So I get into that in this chapter that's all about, you know, the way it's made. And so I make that connection to the, the way it's made. Th those are a few of the things about feedback. I, I, I won't, you know, continue to list them unless you think I've forgotten something. No, no, that's great. And we'll get into feedback a little bit more um, later in the conversation too. It's perfect. So cool. as we move into the next chapter, scenes of liveness and deadness. You talk about all three of those components and their centrality in conceptualizing and experiencing at least one part of this phenomenon of noise. So scenes, because you bring us into the spaces of noise. So the live house, the fact that they're, it's performed often in very small, very crowded spaces, liveness and deadness. And we'll talk about those two and what those mean for you in a moment. But you open and you close this chapter by introducing us to a performance by performers of noise that really encapsulates all of these phenomena as they emerge in this chapter. And this is a group called the Incapacitants. So can you take us into what's going on in this chapter in the Incapacitants um, performance at the No Fun Fest? And how does this get us to understanding here um, if you could, what you mean by liveness and deadness and the work that that's doing here in the chapter. Okay. So first, incapacitance is a, probably one of the most famous uh, noise groups in the world. They're sort of unarguably um, noise. And like I said, that because the genre is hard to define, you know, you, you have a lot of argument going on. So when you have somebody that's sort of unarguably considered uh, like a masters of, of, of something, then that's an exception. Uh, but there are these really interesting, um, it's a really interesting case because they, although they're really well known in the United States and, uh, and elsewhere in the, in, you know, outside of Japan, they have only 
been known through the circulation of their recordings. So really the chapter is about trying to look at feedback and circulation, you know, through the ways in which, you know, music is conceptualized, music performance is conceptualized. Most of the time when we think, like I mentioned grunge before, and when you think about grunge, you think about Kurt Cobain, you know, stage diving or something like that. There's this performative aspect that that really encapsulates it. And, and when you want, if you, you know, want to say I was really there, or I really understand it. You were there in 90, whatever, uh, 1990 or 87 or something in Seattle, you know, watching these bands play. And so with popular music scenes, you have this idea of a scene and the people who are there at these clubs in Seattle are going to be the people who, you know, determine uh, uh, what that scene, you know, what, what it's like. And then it grows from there. So there's an authenticity to place and, and there's an authenticity to performance. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, in a, in a, in a situation that violates those or when, when it doesn't provide them, at least, how do people conceive, how do they make authenticity out, out of it? And so I was inspired by uh, Louise Menke's book, Sound of Africa, which uh, talks about uh, Zulu musicians and and uh the way in which their music uh is is uh is produced to represent a, a cultural place and uh then how it circulates to people who who are disconnected from that place and i and i thought uh, uh it's interesting how that happens in the US so i was lucky enough to experience in the event that at the end of this chapter i describe which is uh, uh the performance of incapacitants when they finally did come you know to the US and play in 2007 at this no fun fest and all of the noise people uh on the east coast came to this thing and they overwhelmed the uh the performers with with their energy and it was this very intense moment in which these people sort of enacted uh all of the years of of of, of you know relating to this music and and not having a sense of just sort of embodied the circulation in that moment. And it would be really easy to look at that and say, and this is the point of the chapter. Um, well, that's the definitive point, you know, the point in which something becomes real or is realized or, you know, takes place, uh, is performed. And then, you know, that's it. But in fact, it's all the other disconnected experiences, you know, that, that, you know, are just as crucial. And, and so I, I was interested in the sort of, um, relationship between recordings and, and live music and how they reinforce one another. And in, in our studies of music culture, anthropological, ethnomusicological studies, we often, you know, look at, at uh, these things as being separate, you know, that, that you have, first you have the real thing, the performance, and then you have this thing, like I was saying before, that, that goes out and emanates from it and is circulated. And that, that's where all the telephone game stuff happens and the distortion is introduced and all the unreality uh, and um, and Orientalisms and misinterpretations and illusions uh, are inserted into the circulation. And I thought, well, that's not how this this happened. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, sort of go back and and look at that again. Great. Thank you so much. And this chapter also raises, and I won't ask you to talk too much about it because um, I'm going to ask you to talk about other things that are in later yeah. chapters. Um, but this chapter also introduces the kind of sensory um, experience of listening to noise, and the importance of volume and intensity um, to that experience. 
And I mention that because one of the words that you used in just describing that chapter and the phenomena therein was this word embodied. And this is actually really important to the work that happens really in the entire book, but also um, the work that brings us into the next chapter. This is thinking about embodiment. Here and elsewhere in the book, what emerges for the reader, or one of the many things that emerges for the reader, is the importance of physicality, of in-person physical contact with other people, with spaces, with recordings, with materials, and that infuses everything about the book, at least from the perspective of, of this reader, right, of one reader. Now, this takes us into... Um, issues in the second chapter of, okay, keeping this importance of physicality and embodiment in mind and having just understood from the previous chapter the importance of recording um, as formative and shaping noise, where do listeners and where did listeners in the 1990s find out about recordings? Where did they go to learn about noise and learn about the music and get access to some of the recordings? This chapter looks into that question by exploring the importance of record stores to the spaces of noise in Japan. And you talk about this in terms of mapping. So could you say a little bit here um, about that, about these central notions of, first, how did listeners in the 1990s find out about noise producers and music, and how is your idea of mapping central to the kind of argument that you're making about um, that curation of noise by record stores and, and label owners here in the chapter? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, thanks. Yeah. The mapping and you know is related to place and how you know you know a place and so the question you know when you start with something called japan noise is you know well what's the japan part have to do with it and how do people you know know about it so i thought a map was a a useful metaphor um in the sense that it's an outsider's point of view and it's 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 sort of uh how you navigate a space that you you know you wouldn't map your house right you could find your way through it blindfolded and and you know it because it's part of your 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 life and and a map isn't necessary it's only necessary when you're explaining to someone what something is and you know there's a real you know uh conflict there with with how you uh bring that knowledge that's implicit knowledge of place out into the world and and and, and there are many different ways to do it and so i was really inspired by a work by steve feld and keith basso anthropologists who work on place and especially Basso's work with uh, Apache, who I talk about here, Western Apache and how um, knowledge uh, of, of something that's very deep to a group of people can be, be circulated or, or put into language or put into, into, into uh, circulation among others. So at the same time as I'm, I'm saying it's a metaphor in all these things, there were, there were maps that, that were published. So if you needed to find a record store in Tokyo, you needed a map to get there because you just couldn't, even Japanese people need maps to find these places. You can't just, just, uh, stumble into them. They're on the top of these buildings, uh, office buildings on the seventh floor in the back room. And, and you don't know where they are. And so there's that aspect of the underground in which it's a place that's waiting to be found. And to map it is a, is a very ambivalent and complicated thing to do. The same thing is true about make, letting people know about a, an underground music. It's it's like giving someone a map to buried treasure, and the people who buried it don't necessarily want it to be dug up. I know that my book, you know, caused some conflict in that way too. It's it's kind of a map 
of, and telling you, oh, well, there's a history here. Or, oh, there is, there's, there's this person and that person. Incapacitance is important. Uh, 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 that kind of thing. And the, the ramifications of that are very complicated for representing um, social life, representing uh, music and people. And, and at the same time, you know, you have people who really, uh, they use the maps to, to make their own reality. And so they bring the knowledge that, that they, that they get from these records back. So I talk about compilations and, um, that's a very common thing in defining scenes that you get a record that's called like the sound of, we go back to grunge, the sound of Seattle or something. And it would be, you know, 10 tracks from bands that were hot at that moment or something. And then if you had that, you would trust this map is guiding me somewhere real. And even though I've never been to Seattle and I don't know, you know, I'm going to, if I listen to these tracks, I will get a sense of what that musical culture is all about. And you put your trust in, in that or, or you give authenticity to it. And, you know, how does it take uh, that role? How does it, how does just because somebody put these songs together and who's behind it and what's, what's the communication here and what are the, what are the consequences of having a compilation called land of the rising noise or, or something like that, or welcome to dreamland, the, the, these compilations that I talk about and all the different intentions. These people, none of these people are, are, are deliberately mi- trying to misrepresent anything. You know, it's just the act of map making requires a representational practice that, that, that brings up things they, they would never have considered. Awesome. Thank you so much. And sort of while we're on the topic of maps and space and, um, and these sorts of issues, the chapters really move very beautifully from, um, I mean, almost in a kind of, I want to say musical way, there's a flow to the topics from chapter to chapter. They feel very organically connected. And this is a perfect um, example of that. We just talked about record stores and maps as spaces of the production of noise culture and the production of this as an idea and also um, spaces of access. Another kind of space of noise that you move us really beautifully into in the, in the next chapter are spaces of listening. So we move here from the production and recording spaces in chapter one to the spaces of access and curation in chapter two, and here to the spaces of listening, which are also spaces of production. Chapter three really interestingly compares practices of listening in two different kinds of spaces. The post-war jazukisa, which was a kind of controlled genre-focused listening to jazz records. You would go in, you would be quiet. Um, It was a very different kind of space from this other kind of space that you introduce us to and that you compare that with. And that was the kind of free space that became one of the central spaces of the emergence of noise. And you mentioned drugstore in particular. So can you tell us a little bit about um, this kind of space of noise making, noise production, and noise listening in this context of the book? What was drugstore and how does understanding this in contrast to what was going on in this jazukisa kind of environment help us understand your argument for um, in, in this part of the book okay uh so drugstore was um a small space for a particular group of of students and young people in the uh, late 70s and early 80s to listen to records. And what they were listening to were records that weren't easy to get. You know, a lot of underground, prog, rock, and electronic music, and free jazz, and and just all these things that didn't fit, and that were very hard to get in Japan. So I compared that with uh, Jazukisa, which are these places that have been around for quite a while, and Taylor Atkins has a wonderful book about this called Blue Nippon, which in he doesn't talk about only Jazukisa, but about jazz in Japan. And these special places for listening where 
you could go and hear music that you wouldn't be able to access otherwise. And that had a lot to do with the way that uh, jazz and other um, foreign musics were socialized in, in Japan. And so uh, at the same time, you know, there's this sort of way in which Jazukisa were about studying a genre or studying a culture. And uh, these people were listening to stuff that they were trying to detach um, in a way from, from its source and say, you know, well, I don't really care that this comes from Germany or England or, or the United States. Like it's all noise to me. And, we, and the, the fact that they put these things together in a new category that they called noise was a way for them to sort of find their own space through listening, a creative space that led them to start doing their own thing. So they started improvising and making, um, making labels to, to put out their own stuff. And so that, so that this moment of a uh, historical moment is, this is the only moment where I get, you know, really specifically historical in the book. And I deal with these particular people who hung out a drugstore and I know all these people and, and, you know, heard the story from, from them. I knew it was important because I heard, I heard it from so many people that this special place. And, and I thought that was a really interesting way to look at their, their story that they, that they hung out together for these years and listened to, to all this stuff and called it noise. And there's a great um, discussion in this part of the book too, that I'm not going, I'll just mention for listeners to let them know that it's there and it's wonderful of um, the founding members of a group that becomes really important in this book called Hijo Kaidan. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Yeah. Hijo Kaidan. Hijo Kaidan um, forming at drugstore and transforming into this, uh, group or cult collective that did these really extreme performances. And you describe the drugstore environment as this kind of crucible from which um, this group, this mode of performance, and ultimately a record label emerged in a really interesting way. But they're not the only group um, that's really fascinating in this part of the book. Um, in fact, the next chapter, Genre Noise, looks at two uh, groups and or performers who really encapsulate um, in very, very different kinds of ways, moments of and examples of noise as you are treating it in the book. One of them, as you know, as somebody working at a Canadian university, I have to open with these um, as the first <laughs> example. One of them is this Canadian group, Nihilist Spasm Band. They began perform performing in 1965 in London, Ontario, as the official band, and as you, as you uh, mentioned here, most of the members of the Nihilist Party of Canada. So, okay, you need to, for, to indulge me here. Um, yeah. Can you say a little bit about this nihilist spasm band and how do they come into the story of Japanese and like what's their entry into the story in Japan in particular, um, which happens and which is actually kind of interesting? Yeah. The nihilist spasm band is a wonderful story. They're wonderful people. And I, I uh, met them because... I was going to see uh, Hijo Kaidan play in London, which is their hometown in Ontario. And, and the, I, of course I knew, I knew about them, but through, again, through the Japan, Japanese uh, uh, noise people. So the, the thing about the Nihilist Spasm band was that they were playing for many years in their, you know, town and they didn't really care about making records or getting out there that much. they, they had done a few recordings and they were issued on a, you know, like a thousand copies and the copies went out there in the world and, uh, you know, no one ever, you know, made much of them. And, and, uh, except for in Japan, these, they were the records that they were listening to at drugstore. And so the Hijo Kaidan and, and Jojo Hiroshige, who starts the 
Alchemy Records label, you know, has always wanted to connect with these people. And he, he finally he writes them a letter in 96 and says, you know, can we put out some of your music? Um, and then, you know, would you come to uh, I guess it was it was it was before that in the early 90s. And then in 96, they go to Japan. He brings them to Japan to play. And everybody there is introduced to the group as the godfathers of noise. So the. Um, the idea here is that you have, again, it's like this retroactive feedback, you know, in which the history has to be fed back into something that already exists. The circulation between uh, North America and, and Japan is so strong that now you need origin stories. And of course, you know, it's not wrong. I mean, these people were, you know, among the groups that were listened to in drugstore. Uh, and, you know, they are an incredibly interesting group, but they were sort of on their own up there in Canada doing their own thing. And um, then they suddenly uh, were brought into circulation and they said, well, noise is, that's okay. You know, they weren't even calling themselves noise per se. And now uh, that, that circulation has very strongly defined their, their history. They're very unique people. And I got to spend some time with them and I stayed uh, at, at, at Art Pratton's house and uh, they're just wonderful people. And, uh, and I, and, you know, I telling the story of that, that connection was a way to, to talk about, how um, genres uh, are, are these, you know, sort of, you know, uh, ongoing uh, constructions and ongoing practices that involve all sorts of people that, that might never otherwise have been connected. That's right. And also reading about them in the book, I should mention, I immediately wanted to meet them and have them over for coffee. And um, so it's, they're very, um, this is one example of many, many in the book where the figures that you're writing about are very sympathetically and are very wonderfully introduced and rendered. Um, and it just, it's a, a really wonderful set of characters and people and it's very humanized um, stories about these individuals that comes out of the book. So it's a very human story as well, which I really loved. Now, one of the other humans um, in this uh, part of the book um, is Akita Masami, who goes by the name of, of Mersbo. I'm not going to ask you to talk about him actually at this point, because I want to ask you about some other chapters. And this is ironic because this artist, as you put it in the book, came to define the genre of Japanese for a new audience overseas. And I'm not going to ask you to talk about him. But, okay. I will mention, <laughs> um, but I will mention this for listeners because he's um, apparently become really the kind of figurehead for a lot of the way people experience and understand Japanese. And you talk about him here in the context of his work, of the extremity of his work, and of the sheer quantity of releases of his work in the context of putting him into dialogue with what's happening with Nihilist Spasm Band and using them to, using the dialogue between them to, in your story, to raise this issue of genre. Now, as we move, though, further into the book, there's a lot here that we could spend a whole lot of time on, and we could easily spend another two hours just talking about the next chapter. So I'm going to go through this fairly, um, I'm going to sort of dip in and dip out here, but I want to make sure that we get to at least with a little bit of what's happening in the next chapter. So the next chapter, Feedback, Subjectivity, and Performance, takes this organizing concept, this really important notion of feedback that we mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, and explores very different ways and different contexts in which feedback structures noise um, and, and gives it its lack of structure as well, in which feedback is really central to this story. So you talk about feedback as a metaphor for cultural exchange and reciprocity in social science. You talk about um, feedback in terms of creativity 
and the performance of noise. But you also talk about feedback as part of the electrical sound and the technical structure of the performance system as of noise. And this is one of the things that I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about. You've already mentioned um, some of the equipment used by noise practitioners, noise performance um, artists, but could you speak a little bit more to the technology of, and the, the sort of machinic aspect of what's going on in noise performances, in noise recordings, and in noise production? Because this also gets at Another phenomenon that happens later in the book where you talk about the importance of machines, but also machines only in their discourse with the analog. So let's take a moment here to talk about feedback, but feedback in the context of technology, the machinic, and the structure and tools of sound production for the artist of noise. So could you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, feedback is the way that, that a lot of noise is made, not all. I mean. Uh, so, so, but, but the, the basic idea of, of noise performance or and noise recordings is to set up a circuit and then overload it and, and create feedback loops within it. So you have, um, oh, something that's, that when, you know, one of the things that, that, that you want to describe is the sort of iconic relationship between an idea and like harmony and the culture that that made it. So in, in the West, we have the idea of harmony, and that's and that music is supposed to sort of reflect that, and that you should feel harmony when music is good, and when you hear noise, it's it means something's gone wrong. Those are ideas that come from our epistemologies about music, and and so I was inspired to think about how people live with technology and look at the ways in which they um, create uh, sound as part of 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 a, of a of an epistemology of of creativity. And I thought, well, what kind of subject, what kind of creative subject comes out of, of that idea um, of, of a circuit that um, doesn't necessarily, it's not like a person speaking, like I, I have an idea, I put the saxophone to my mouth, I, I play a sound, I put my emotion into it, it's like me speaking. And when you hear it, you understand what I'm saying. That's very different than taking a microphone and putting up to a speaker and creating a loop and having this, you know, racket come out and then trying to manipulate that racket or, or something like that, or, or is it different? And that was one of the questions that I asked throughout the book. It, it, how is noise not just a kind of music that lots of people wouldn't recognize as such, but the, couldn't you just call it music? And lots of people might uh, make that argument, and I do. Um, so there's that question of what is musical subjectivity in this case? And you have um, machines, uh, uh, you know, sort of have always created problems. And we don't think about a violin as a machine, or the act of performing a repetitive motion, like practicing as a technology, but they are all technologies of musical subjectivity that your techniques of musical subjectivity that help to create um, the sort of machines uh, uh, and they help to create the expectations and the, um, and the, and the forms of communication that surround music. So the fact that you had this thing where you plugged in a, a circuit and you had it feed back into itself and there was all these electronics and at the end of it, it was all going to be destroyed. Uh, to me, uh, I thought was a really interesting way to look at at some of the other metaphors that come out of out of the music. The the idea of circulation, the idea uh, uh, that somebody somewhere is connected to someone else, but in a maybe involuntary way, things change as just as they circulate. 
Great. And one of the other things that comes up in this chapter that I just want to mention, because it brings us back to the issue of embodiment and sort of physicality of a lot of this story. You talk here about the what you call the profound physical intimacy that noise artists have with their electronic setups. And this is ultimately kind of a paradox here because they're vulnerable to the equipment they use, even as if they are destroying it and controlling it. So it's a really interesting um, again, point at which we have the, this intimacy and this physical intimacy in particular coming into this story. Yeah. Now, as we move toward the last couple of chapters of the book, chapter six brings us directly into not just noise, but Japan in particular, the issue of Japan, the context of Japan, the concept of Japan as it is structuring the story. You open here with the 2011 Experimental Music and Art Festival in Fukushima. Fukushima. Sorry, I'm now pronouncing everything wrong, but listeners that from me. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's okay. I it sounds good. Okay, good. That's Fukushima, Fukushima. I'm just going to pronounce it both ways just to cover all my bases. So you uh-huh. open with this, um, this experimental music and art festival in 2011 and talk here about the possible conceptual link and relationship between radiation and feedback and noise in a really interesting way. Now, this leads us into here what I want to... Um, ask you to talk a little bit about as you discuss it in the chapter, and that's the idea of Japanese as a kind of critique of technoculture, and one that's specifically embedded in the sensibilities of Japan in the 80s and 90s. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because that brings us right into um, the the context of Japan and of technoculture therein, just very specifically. Right. So it's that question of, well, what is the context of Japan, and what is Japan as a figure in this relationship. And, and so when you have uh, the idea that of technology also, you know, w- w- brings us to question, you know, what is our choice and to what extent Japan developed the way that it did out of, out of choice. And the fact that Japan was developed in the post-war as the technological factory for the world or the electronics factory for the world, it, you know, and how much of that is, is, is an outgrowth of as, as, is, as was explained in a lot of, um, you know, orientalist accounts of the eighties as a sort of cultural attribute. And there's no denying that Jap- Japan has this special connection to technology and that it's represented through technology and that you can think of Japan and, um, noise as part of a techno culture. Now, I don't think that, uh, Japan is, of course, I don't, I, I'm arguing that, that, that it's not just Japan and that the reason, part of the reason that there is a, a sort of feelingful connection between uh, uh, fans in in North America who aren't you know connected to a Japanese cultural space to to Japan noise uh, is that they feel uh, similarly about the dangers of technology and they fear technology and that the the reasons that um, that the music has uh, a connection and appeal has to do with both the expectation that Japan represents a technological space through things like anime and science fiction that are consumed uh, in North America about Japan in in which, you know, Japan is pigeonholed as a place of robotic technologies and things like that. And then also uh, that both places share um, the anxieties of, of, of living in a culture that, forces people to use technologies in which people aren't sure. And when you work with music, for instance, um, and, or you, you let, let's say, I mean, who's not on Facebook? If you're not on Facebook, what's going to happen to you? You know, are you going to still be part of society? Um, and those aren't, aren't, aren't like idle questions. And, and, and so the questions about like what kind of a person gets made in that relationship and how creativity 
and and music can can uh, sort of express people's position in relation to something like um, uh, uh, Tamagotchi or something like that. I mean, are you is that your pet or is that your friend or is that what is going on there? And Allison's wonderful book, Millennial Monsters, deals with a lot of this stuff. So I was trying to get to how that works in these performances, which, as you say, involve you know destruction. And so some of these things that happen, like somebody driving a bulldozer into a club and or smashing or burning um, speakers or uh, or, or or destroying their electronics just as a matter of course, even though those are electronics are, the, are their basic expressive tools. That's what that's what they use to make their music. What's going on there? So it, you know that's what that chapter is about. And this is I'm really glad you brought up the um, bulldozers and the sort of the spectacle of this as well. Or in bringing up the bulldozers, one of the things that listeners might experience is a sense of the spectacle of this, as I should put it. One of the reasons, actually, I haven't been structuring this interview the way I could be, right? Though I could be asking you all the way through about all of these really wonderfully evocative sort of fantastic moments in the book where there is this sense of spectacle, you know, driving the bulldozer through the building, um, smashing the all of the materials on the table, having this you know, crowd sort of pulsate through and almost overwhelm the performers in the middle of the room. And I think that one of the things that would happen by structuring the story like that, which I was tempted to do because it's so fascinating. And I mentioned this so that listeners also have a sense of the fascinating vignettes in this book and the scenes that were brought into in this book. But one of the reasons I didn't do that is that it seems to me in reading this that it's not about the spectacle for the sake of spectacle, right? I mean, it's about the kind of experience that these moments are creating and the larger kind of themes and arguments that you're using them to make, not just about noise, but about how we understand what we're doing when we try to understand the concept of Japan, how do how we understand relationships between you know bodies and technology and these larger themes. And so I mentioned this just to make clear to listeners too, there are, are many, many stories embedded in the book and there are many, many ways we could have gone into them. And the bulldozers are super important and fascinating. And it's interesting to think about the different ways I think we could have entered into the story about these performances and the different kinds of experiences that that would have you know, led us to in terms of understanding the book. Anyway, it's, it's, this is me going off on a tangent because, as you can see, um, this is a very thoughtful book, and it's made me um, think really hard about a lot of the questions that you're bringing up here. Thank you. So I digress. Um, so I don't want to let you go and close up before I ask you about the cassettes. So if you'll indulge me, um, sure. I want to just ask you just a, a question or two about um, this last body chapter of the book before we close up. So chapter seven looks at what you call the future of cassette culture. It looks at the importance of the cassette and cassette culture to the circulation of noise, but also to keeping it underground. So at the same time, both of these aspects of the ways that cassette culture shapes noise are equally important and create a kind of feedback loop um, among each other. So you talk about here the phenomenon whereby in the 1980s, you had to really want to find it in order to find noise. And if you found it, you found it on a cassette. Whereas today, cassettes actually are used to impose limits on the accessibility to noise, given the omnipresence 
of musical um, circulation of uh, sort of music as a commodity in the context of new media. So this is what I'd like to ask you to talk about. You make an argument here that noise's inaccessibility was crucial to its circulation between North America and Japan, and that part of this has to do with its embracing of an embodiment within a cassette culture. So can you talk about that importance of a cassette culture? Yes, absolutely. Well, this ch- this chapter is really here as a way of it's it's a way of saying uh, I'm not going to talk about the internet, right? Uh, and and or it's, it's a way of saying I am going to talk about the internet without you know writing a whole chapter about what's happening now online with noise, which is the way that you could take this. And I thought you know well I did an ethnographic project here. I'm not going to go and 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 explain what's happening online although i do you know some ethnographic work online and of course it it did change but what i found was interesting about noise was how dedicated it was to analog um forms of circulation and and equipment but also uh the 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 fact that cassettes were this natural uh continuity even through a, a period in which no commercial context was available. And of course, that was very appealing. Now you have actually more and more cassettes. You have actually start to see them in, in little record stores, those that are left. But uh, that cassettes offer, offered, I thought, a lot of the things that people associate with, with um, MP3 and with digital technologies. So that you have uh, a form that is um, cheap and, and democratic and accessible and that, that you can send you know, quickly. And that, you know, th- why didn't it revolutionize uh, the music industry was everybody's question about the cassette. And I'm going to make the argument. Yeah, it did, you know, and that you had these, that you wouldn't have something like uh, noise without, uh, not without the cassette, the cassette didn't make it happen, but that, that cause they grew together. And the idea that you um, wouldn't know where it came from is, is somewhat like uh, the way that things can circulate online, that something can become like a meme and, and it's be, um, a meme because of its sort of, incommensurability or it's hard, difficult to interpret it. And what, what is this? What is this? Uh, like sigh, uh, is an example, you know, the people, do people know about, about this? Are they going to say, Oh, it's Korean. Uh, he's dancing this dance and, um, Gangnam style is what I'm talking about, you know, so, something like that. And I said, well, this is not that, uh, dissimilar. I mean, uh, you can look at the way that, that an underground culture formed around these cassette circulations and, and see that a lot of the same, uh, uh, expectations were being set up by by the circulation, the idea of a participatory democratic media, and um, and then you have the heart of 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 the chapter, which is discussing how people did it. That they that that there were there was of course fluxus in male art before that, and there were other contexts of of this, but that there were these people who just uh, lived in these vastly different places and could imagine themselves as part of a global music scene. Because you could sit in in wherever uh, in Canada or in in, in Louisiana and, or or in in uh, in some part of Japan that wasn't close to a city and put a tape in the mail and get one back from some other part of the world with no um, you know uh, uh, information just the here's some sounds for you and that to me was very, it's a very fascinating thing to think about and look at it, and it resembles a lot of the ways. Uh, things that have become more normal in, in online circulations. Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me about this. There's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, and I'll mention um, before I give you a chance to, um, to have the floor a little bit that there is also an epilogue. And this epilogue to the book 
looks at the ways that the landscape of noise has changed since you wrote the book and also takes us into some of the ways that some of the main figures that you mentioned in the book have changed. One, ha- one is now a fortune teller. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I yeah. loved that. Um, and it talks about the fact that noise is also not, it's not a stable historical object, right? It's an object insofar as it's an object that it, that is change, that is always changing and that hasn't, um, that hasn't ended. And so looking in the epilogue at ways that that continues to unfold is actually really interesting. So, so given that, there's a, again, there's a ton that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and we could talk easily for another few hours about this, but is there anything specific that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you feel is important to mention or that you'd like to mention, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, one thing I would say is that, you know, sound, sound, sound is something that really, really matters. And I make constant reference to it in the book about how important it is and how people are overwhelmed by it. And, and yet when you read this book, you're not going to get to hear it. Um, And that's a, that's, that's one of the challenges of this. And, but I think it reflects the way that it formed, which is that so many people have, have heard of it and don't know what, uh, what it is. And I thought, you know, well, I'm going to leave them still wondering, but, uh, but that, but that you would have, I can go in front of an audience of people, you know, at a, at a, at a university and usually two or three people will, will know, uh, uh, you know, what I'm talking about. And, th- but, but several people will have heard that there's something like this happening. And so I thought, uh, well, that's a lot, uh, like, um, you know, the, the fact that you have something, uh, that, pe- that people have, have gossiped about um, this, like a, a great story that does the work of circulation, like lays the ground. And then the sound maybe never arrives even. And then there are people who are of course obsessive and, and they would have, uh, they would, would pick up this book and say, well, why don't you talk about the great sounds in it? So um, that is, that is a conflict with writing this kind of a book that I wanted to bring up. And, and I want to mention like my attempts to, to deal with it, which is I, I did make a website where I put up some of the films uh, and our videos and, and, and sound recordings just to, because I know that someone's going to want to Google it immediately. And, and, you know, you can end up all sorts of places, which is great. You know, um, I, I, I don't want to control what people think of or what they hear. Uh, but I wanted to put some examples from the book that sort of illustrate the sounds and, and performances that I'm talking about. So it's www uh, japannoise.com and there's a, a there's a, a bunch of videos and sounds there great thank you so much so david now that the book is out and again congratulations as i'm sure is clear not just for my enunciating it um, but also from the nature of the conversation that we've just had it's also an extraordinarily thoughtful and thought-provoking book and and that's true for even a non-specialist like myself who comes to it um, just with an interest in reading uh, an, an interesting book that seems somehow relevant um, to East Asian studies, and, and it turns out is relevant to so much more than that. But now that the book is out um, and the project is at least closed in this this stage of it, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you, and um, what can we look forward to in the future? Thanks, yeah. Well, one of the things that you mentioned was that this book is about noise with a capital N as a genre and in this circulation. And uh, the thing that I had to leave out is, is, are, are so many of the things that inform our ideas about what noise is. You know, noise as something that disrupts society and noise as something that 
that that interferes with uh, with understanding and meaning and and so uh, I wrote a I've been doing uh, uh, an edited volume with my colleague Matt Sakakini at, at Tulane um, called Keywords and Sound in which we isolate some of these concepts because you know there's this emerging field uh, emerging for quite a while now called sound studies. You might have a new books in sound studies one of these days. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and you have um, and you have a lot of people dealing with sound in ways that that in, w- in which you see the that these ideas are used radic- in radically different ways so uh, uh claims that you can make for instance about noise that don't really line up with with the way that they're used so one of the arguments i make here is that yeah noise can be music of course it can be and that although the 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 very idea of it is being separate from context of silence or context, uh, you know, of, of signal. Or, uh, in fact, you, you need noise to, to make meaning or you need uh, noise, to, you know, as part of music and that you need noise to, uh, to create, you know, the communication relies to some degree on it. So, so I, I wrote the chapter on noise for that. So I'm trying to broaden out my thinking about noise uh, there and to sort of make reference to the ways in which uh, noise is this extremely overproductive concept and sort of tracing out some of the things that I didn't get to do in the book where you could take it. Um, it's a very short keyword, you know, it's like 3000 words, but we're also doing things like, you know, of course we have silence, we have, you know, the body echo and, and many, and uh, many other terms like that. Um, and then, and other than that book, I'm, I'm also doing a, a new project in Japan that's around the noise in the streets around the, uh, anti-nuclear protests uh, post uh, Fukushima post 311. So one of my colleagues from the book, who I, which I talk about a little bit in the book, uh, Otomo Yoshihide is, uh, is from Fukushima and he started a, a festival there, Pro- Project of Fukushima, Project Fukushima, uh, that brings people back to, to the area for you know, music <clears throat> performances. And, and then the other thing I experienced in going back was, uh, was getting swept up into um, the, the the large protests in 2012, and people surrounded the Diet Building and um, demanding that uh, the that you know t- the stop to to well the, against the restart of the of the nuclear power plants, and it's a very uh, uh, I mean it's it's hard to to be working in Japan right now or to be doing any kind of project that doesn't have, it isn't touched by, by what's going on uh, around nuclear power. And so I've just been thinking a lot about, again, like drawing out some of the technocultural themes here about how uh, people can, you know, end up knowing about these things and how they end up feeling uh, what it's like to live in a society that's under that kind of threat when you don't have a a sensory uh, connection. So making noise, in the streets, getting together, being together in a co-present situation of protest. And it's, and it reflects with what's happening around the world with the Occupy movement, with uh, Tahrir Square, with people being in a co-present space with one another uh, and, and, and putting their bodies on the line uh, as part of, uh, uh, of, a, of a, an attempt to create discourse with the governments, with governments that aren't uh, uh, going to hear it in any other way. Mm-hmm. Well, both of those sound absolutely fantastic. So best of luck. Thank you again for making time to talk with me. And it really was a pleasure. Congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Carla. 
You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.